All right. Hello and welcome, everybody. Thank you for joining us today uh, for our discussion on CRIKES, critical access, critical care. And we have a very special guest in Dr. Scott Weingard. Scott is devil's advocate on MRAP, but he is best known for his amazing MCRIT podcast, fellowship trained at Shock Trauma, internationally renowned speaker, and an amazing educator. Scott, welcome to the SimKit podcast. What a pleasure to be talking to you, my friend. So I've invited you to talk about what is probably the hardest case of my life, maybe not not for you, but it definitely was the most challenging case that I experienced. And within this case, there's so much to unpackage, but I kind of see the following topics. Stress mitigation in the heat of the moment, the kind of kiss, keep it simple, stupid phenomenon when performing a crike or really any critical procedure, and aftercare of these critically ill patients. Ready to hear the case? Yeah, can't wait. All right, so... I was two years out from residency training, still had some green behind the ears, uh, but I was working in a remote access hospital in the boonies of my home state. One of these eight-bed EDs, 24-hour shifts, you and maybe the hospitalist if they are on how, in-house at all, that kind of situation. You kind of painting a picture for you where I'm at? Yeah, I'm feeling it, man. You're on your <laughs> own. And uh, third shift there, unfortunately, as well. So I've only done two prior. Got a little bit of a sense of the nurses and staff, but still not a great relationship in terms of that longevity and trust, which is important too. So toward the end of the daytime, I'd had a pretty busy shift. I was settling in, hopefully for a long winter's nap, when we got a radio call, EMS, for a patient that was a burn victim and to expect a difficult airway. And we got 10 minutes. They say they're 10 minutes out. So I go to a, what could barely be called a resuscitation bay, but you know our, our larger bed space that is where we do our critical care. I get tubes all you know six o all the way through eight o LMAs three four and five, and an eleven blade scalpel a bougie. I actually asked for ten cc's of Lido with Epi, and nursing staff knows that they don't have that. So in the heat of the moment, as a MacGyver technique, I take some code cart Epi, drop nine and a half cc's, and put a half cc of Lido into it and get ready for the patient. So, Scott, how did I do that material list? Anything that you would want that I didn't think of or what there was extraneous? Look, you know, whatever gets the job done is a good job. So, uh, you know, these comments are just icing on the cake. But, you know, you mentioned, okay, let's have some Lido with Epi ready. And then we didn't have it. So let's get people to jerry-rig it. And, and mm -hmm. your brain is occupied with that too. And that's the kind of stuff that sends you into a uh, maybe an upregulation of stress loop. And you have to ask yourself, what is going to be the real necessity of this local anesthetic? If, you know, you think, oh, well, you know, if I had to do the crike now, I'll be able to do it with anesthesia. Then you already now have inserted a barrier to that surgical airway, you know, that if, oh, well, if the, if the anesthesia is not enough or, you know, if it's, if it's not getting in the right place or the needle fell on the floor, I, I think it's hurting you rather than helping you at that stage if you have to jury rig making this stuff. Um, we should be doing it the same way every time, which means it's a crash crike. Now, if you told me, okay, well, what if I was going to do an awake crike on this patient, then I'd want general anesthesia. Well, get it at that point. You know, it's not a rush at that mm -hmm. point if you're going to be doing an awake crike. Um, but that's the kind of thing. And I don't point this out because you did anything incorrect. I point this out because oftentimes things of this ilk happen uh, where people have this like, let's prepare for absolutely every 
eventuality and it actually steals from the core preparation that really matters and you did the core prep that matters you know you need a range of airway there you need your full bevy of intubation equipment you now if you had to prepare meds the meds i'd want to be preparing is a dual setup of the meds i need for an rsi and the meds i'd need for an awake intubation i think that would be a better use of the cognitive space i think that totally makes sense you know it probably took two minutes to do and it added to that sense of you know, unfamiliarity that was already very palpable for me being in that space, working with things that I'm, I'm not as familiar with. And it was probably just, like you said, a cognitive load, uh, stress inoculant that I didn't really need. And if, if I'm, I'm tubing a guy that's, you know, burned to that degree of severity, is, is local anesthetic uh, really going to be helpful? Is that extra epi really going to save the procedure? No. You know, I could easily have spent that time reviewing again the RSI meds or prepping the team one more time. So point taken, definitely. And then just kind of talking about that room a little bit. You know, I'm, I'm a newish grad and I'm new to that team. How do you prepare your team for a situation that severe in a place where they really don't see patients like that? Yeah. So, yeah, it's so good. The fact that you're thinking along that mindset already shows a understanding of how uh, the cognitive stresses of these critical resuscitations actually play out. So the main thing I'd be getting across to my team is this is going to be a crap show. This is going to be really tough. My brain is going to be at 110% bandwidth. I want anyone in the room who feels that I'm missing something or has a suggestion to just get my attention and make it. I want you to feel fully actualized to correct anything you see that I might be missing and to help me out. I need the full team's help here. We have to combine our bandwidth into, you know, this group thing to really make this happen because this is going to be really hard. And there's an excellent chance there's going to be an airway really difficult situation. It could go to an airway disaster. It could go to a cricothyrotomy. And now you've done a few things. You've prepped everyone in the room that, A, they should feel, you know, capable of actually putting in their input. You've broken down the barriers of hierarchy and they don't know you as well. So that, you know, team camaraderie that you build over years is not there. This is the way to establish it de novo uh, in the in the moment of the situation. The other thing is if you've already prepped the room for the worst case scenario of how badly it could go, then when you do the crike, there won't be the same degree of performance anxiety of, oh my God, everyone in the room is going to think I'm an asshole because I wasn't able to intubate this patient and they're going to think I'm a failure. Instead, they'll be like, oh my God, he's criking. This doc was so smart. He predicted before the patient even arrived that it could get to this and he was having us all prepped to be able to help him for that. That's an amazing amount of foresight. Wow, this is a great doctor. It changes. Forget about what's going on in their head. That's all mind canon. It, it might never have existed. It's what goes on in your head. What, by you prepping the team for the worst case scenario, you're prepping your own head for the worst case scenario. That makes total sense. And, and I think, you know, in bringing those materials out, I, I spoke with them specifically, like, I don't know what this guy's airway is going to be. These materials are for cricothyrotomy. I think one of the things that I wasn't sure about doing, and I'm curious your input on, is specific roles within the nurses, the RTs. Do you designate in that regard when there's not clarity of what is going to be needed, or you just leave it open-ended? You know, I, in all of my resuscitations at this stage of the game, it's been like this for like eight years, uh, I want to have a, a doc code leader and a nurse code leader for any resuscitation. And what that does is it you establish those roles up front. I'm the doc code leader. It could be the fourth-year resident, and you as the attending are just backup. That's fine. As long as everyone in the room knows who that doc code leader is. But then the nurse code leader becomes the person who... Uh, you could ask for anything you may need. You, may, you could ask for any role to be assigned, and it's the nurse code leader's job to assign it. 
uh, for, for any of the other uh, auxiliary roles. Um, so, you know, it could be nursing roles, but they're also the auxiliary roles of the, the clinical assistants, uh, the blood bank runners, et cetera, et cetera. They do all of those things in addition to the nursing roles. And it means as the doc code leader, I only have to look up at one person. I only have to know one person's name. And I could say, you know, Jim or Connie, I need blood. And then it's for them, the nurse code leader, to figure out how to make that happen. That allows for uh, in-the-moment role assignments to be easily obtained. Now, there are some things, you know, depending on the, the situation of the case, that you know you're going to need assigned ahead of time. Like, you should assign who's going to take the first pass in the intubation. It could be you decide it's an attending-only intubation, it's going to be you, or it could be you, you tell the third-year resident, you're going to get one pass, and then I'm going to do the next two, and then we'll fail to an LMA, and then if that fails, surgical airway. Um, respiratory therapy, you got to make the decision up front what you want them to be doing. Otherwise, it becomes a real uh, cluster uh, because mm -hmm. they think, oh, well, it's my job to bag. And you're like, no, no, I want to bag because I want to feel the compliance of this patient. I want to know if those breaths are getting in. Establish that ahead of time. If you want the respiratory therapist's role to be, once we need the ventilator, make that happen and help me out by plugging things into the oxygen in the wall, then that's fine as long as you establish it ahead of time. But if you leave it ambiguous, then people are going to be running into each other's way. I love that. I particularly love that nurse code leader element of just cognitively offloading yourself, right? You have one point of contact for yourself. You're not trying to remember names. You got badges flipped over in an unfamiliar environment. You have one point of contact. You can remember the one name. You talk directly to that person and you're offloaded in so many other ways. Um, so we're prepping the room. You know, those 10 minutes they give us, they feel like two, of course, in terms of getting ready. And we get a little more information about the, the patient. So he's a 58-year-old gentleman. He actually had been battling with depression for a while and working with his primary care doctor, I think it was like two or so weeks prior, got started on antidepressants and unfortunately seemed to have that kind of paradoxical worsening. And after his uh, wife had gone to bed that night, he went out to his woodshed, covered himself in gasoline and self-ignited. And so he comes flying through the door and looks absolutely horrible. You know, the smell of burnt hair and flesh, that very visceral sense comes in, fills the entire room. He's covered in partial and full thickness burns of the head, neck, torso. He's really not responsive, you know, minimally responsive. EMS is bagging him, kind of ins assisting his native respirations. And the vital signs kind of come through as follows. Like he was, heart rate was, he was tacky in the 130s. He did have a good blood pressure, 158 over 98. Respirations were quick at 22. And he was on the, uh, the, M the uh, EMU bag at 94%. So I put him on flush rate oxygen, and we continue to assist with BVM. He doesn't have that level of agitation or combating this where I, I felt comfortable giving him 10 milligrams of ketamine, trying to take a look. He didn't really tolerate that, so we gave him another push of uh, 10 milligrams of ketamine, and he allowed the uh, CMAC to, to be passed. The view was kind of as expected. Posterior pharynx is singed, edematous, markedly edematous cords with a very small opening. I'm actually able to get the bougie through that glottic opening that's just pinpoint. Um, I gave rocuronium, which I think probably was a mistake, but we'll dive into that more, and try to pass a 6-0 tube. Tube will not go. I try turning him, I try rotating it, I try all these different positions, and his O2 starts to go down. We're able to take the, uh, the bougie out and put it in an LMA, and he does bag with that, uh, but it's pretty clear at this point the direction we're going. This guy is going to need a cricothyrotomy. So at that point, in this room filled with that horrific smell, that's relatively unfamiliar to me, I actually start to get 
this blackening in the periphery of my vision. Oh, God. I, and so, before we get to this part, because this is where the drama and emotion really take place, do you think we should talk about the stages up till this moment of the decision to crack? Absolutely. Let's do it. Let's dive in. All right. So you, you very appropriately did an awake look uh, on this patient. Yeah, you got him in a good plane with the ketamine to be able to do that. And you, you found a glottic opening that would fit a bougie but wouldn't fit any tube to be railroaded over that. Um, now, a few things. Uh, if you could fit a bougie, you might be able to fit a pediatric tube in lieu of the bougie. Um, mm. But what some centers have, and if you have them, then you should know about it ahead of time, is they have tube exchangers. Now, did you guys have at this critical access hospital tube exchangers? I'm going to say no. I, don't, I didn't ask for one, and I'm going to probably say no, but uh, let's say probably not and not ask for it. All right. If you did have them, the, what they provide is the capability of actually bagging or uh, ventilating through them. They actually come with an adapter that just takes the BVM. Um, and it, if you were able to put that through, then everything else subsequent becomes a, a lot slower and easier to manage because you know you're still capable. You have something in the trachea that is going to allow you to uh, continue to bag them throughout. Now, uh, many places don't stock these. It's a good thing to stock because it makes tube exchanges a lot safer too. But let's, you didn't have it. No worries. What was the thought of pushing the rock? Honestly, in retrospect, I, I've played this over, you know, a hundred times. And I don't know. I, it was just a cognitive error. I had passed something through his, you know, uh, glottic opening. And I, it was almost route, I think, uh, in terms of we have, you know, access into the trachea. And we move forward in that in that sequence. I, I think it was just a complete cognitive error. Yep, I, I hear you, and uh, you know I totally could uh, sympathize with that. So in general, uh, obviously, and you you've come to the same viewpoint. Uh, pushing rock or paralytics in these patients is not a great idea because they're going to be much more capable of continuing spontaneous breathing through a smaller orifice than you guys are going to be doing by giving positive pressure from above. Now you were lucky. The LMA did allow continued ventilations, but it's not always that case. Sometimes you get collapse of what was a uh, tenuous but still patent airway uh, to now uh, non-patent airway. And so leaving them awake uh, in any circumstance of a market anatomical difficult airway is the way to go, in my opinion. And doing an awake crike with a patient who is uh, spontaneously breathing is a joy. Uh, it's a real pleasure compared to when the clock starts ticking for an apneic crike. Now, you guys were lucky. You were able to bag during the LMA, so you're still having a ventilated crike. Um, but it would have been, I think, a safer way to go to just pull that bougie, put back on the high-flow O2, and then just make the decision, which you made anyway, of let's just progress to a surgical airway because this is inevitable. This is not safe to leave them in this pinhole-sized opening uh, at, for any period of time, but it does give us a, now a nice, safe, calm uh, cricothrotomy. So that, that would be, I think, in retrospect, a different way to play that may be a little bit safer. But uh, we, the chips are lying where they may. It's all good. And now you've made the decision to do surgical airway, and you're about to tell me about the encroachment on your visual field by the fun little blackness of full-on stress overload. Yes. First, I want to recognize that probably only Scott Weingart would call an awake cricothyrotomy an absolute joy, but I guess there's the theory of relativity in that. There you go. Um, but yeah, so the decisions made, I, I this moment I made the decision is when I started to notice that. My respirations, I think, were quick. Obviously, I could, I could feel and hear my pulse in my ears, and it just started to creep in. You know, peripheral vision, a little bit worse, a little bit worse, and I started to recognize, man, I am, I'm overloaded. I, uh, my, as you said, I'm, I'm 
overwhelmed with catecholamines right now. And so I was wondering, Scott, walk us sort of through what's happening, how you approach it as an individual. And I'm very interested in how you teach residents, you know, most of whom are not going to work in critical care, shock trauma situations, but in a community, perhaps not this remote, how they would handle these types of incredibly rare, but incredibly high acuity situations. Well, you know, it's funny because I'll pull back from that last part of the question and say that uh, for some people uh, at some points in their career, I I should say for all people at some point in their career, an innocuous thing is going to put them in the same degree of stress overload. It's all relative to depending on how often you've done what is expected of you and whether it's a uh, threat or challenge perception. So, you know, for a first year resident, then putting a central line in may put them in the same state of stress overload you were with the burn patient for crike. So there's no shame wherever you're at. If you're feeling this, it's a normal thing. And that tunneling you describe of uh, peripheral vision loss and you, you get this blackness at the periphery of your vision, uh, pulse overload, uh, you know, uh, what is this? In essence, self-induced apnea. Uh, you stop breathing or if you do breathe, it's dog panting and therefore has no actual gas exchange. All completely normal. Um, what you need is... Uh, in the moment stress uh, relief. And and Mike Laurie and I put out a paper on this uh, that gives a number of steps. Uh, you know, since we wrote that paper, I've mitigated and changed some of the ideas in there from what I actually teach. So we used to teach square breathing, uh, what you breathe in for some period of time, four or five seconds, you hold for four or five, you breathe out for four or five, hold again. Um, it works. I think it only works because it's making you aware of your breathing and forcing you to take nice, deep, slow breaths. Uh, what I actually find more effective in my own practice, and uh, there is some literature outside of this realm to support it, is uh, vagal induction breathing. And what that is, is um, for the most part, for many people, it's going to be this timing. You breathe in as deep as you can down into your belly, all the way into your pelvis for four seconds, and then you force yourself with pursed lips to breathe out for six seconds. Um, and it's that extended uh, exhalation time that actually starts countering the sympathetic surge. And if you could do uh, two or three of those, you you'll should feel some cessation of that stress. The other thing to do is uh, get a handle on what your self-talk is telling you. If you have a critic in your brain that's telling you you're going to fail, you messed up, how do you get to this place in the first place of needing to crike? It means you're an idiot at airway management. And you got to shut that voice up and say, um, this was an inevitable surgical airway. And I am absolutely up to the task of getting this job done. And I've trained on this on models, and I know I could do this. And that positive self-talk will absolutely help if you have a negative critic. Um, I like to recommend that people find their feet. If you can't find your feet, meaning you you say, like, where are my feet? And you have no idea. You can't have any uh, perception of the actual uh, feedback of your feet sensory apparatus on the floor. You, you can't feel your shoes. Then that means spend five seconds on finding your feet again. And this, just like the breathing control, will just change your brain's um, relationship to the stress. So if you find your feet and control your breathing and get your self-talk under control, um, within 10 or 20 seconds, you should have uh, mitigated, not eliminated, but mitigated the stress overload. I love that. There's so much to unpackage there. So first, the box breathing or or, uh, square breathing, I think you had used that term. I yeah. I teach that to people that obviously come in for panic all the time. I use that in this circumstance. Um, And then self-talk, I don't know. I believe you use a specific phrase yourself. I've heard you say, you know, sort of slow is smooth, smooth is fast in terms of trying to calm oneself down and feel in control. Uh, I've actually not adopted that. I I suffer, you know, a little bit of imposter syndrome, and I kind of just hear you saying that in my head. I feel like (laughs) I need my own term. 
So, uh, you know, relax. It, you it's got funny. This, you're in control. You know, you, you can uh, blend it two things. And I think the blending is fine. But um, there's self-talk, uh, positive mm -hmm. self-talk, which is uh, what I had alluded to. And then what you had mentioned, we actually, uh, you know, we don't like to use this terminology, but that's what it really is. It's a mantra. Um, it's actually mm -hmm. a, uh, a something that sets off a chain of pre-set um, feelings within yourself. So the slow, smooth, slow, math is what we actually uh, call as a, a power phrase, a mantra, you're going to see various things in the literature on that. And that's something you generally should build ahead of time with whatever mm -hmm. relaxation processes you do as you associate it with that phrase. So that it becomes a Pavlovian linking of that in your mind. Um, and that could be helpful even when you're not in the midst of stress overload. So you're going into any resuscitation situation. And for me, yes, it is indeed slow, smooth, smooth, is fast from the military. Um, and, and that's that uh, power phrase or mantra uh, that is connected to a state of uh, relaxation and well-being and capability, uh, while the self-talk is when you've already surpassed uh, the pre-stage and now your your inner critic, your imposter syndrome voice is telling you all these bad things. Then whatever uh, internal verbalizations mitigate that that works for you is great. So you're you know if you are hearing me say you got it, man, and slow, smooth, smooth, fast. I love that, and I'm happy to be serving that role. I won't charge you for that at all. And um, by all means, whatever works to counter the inner critics. Oh, I I appreciate the the no charge, the free service there, and yeah, I I like the idea of both the mantra and then any really in the high stake circumstance, any positive self talk that works for you. I want to dive a little bit more into that breathing. I think that's interesting. The idea of sort of a pursed lip exhalation, or really, are you trying to Valsalva and uh, create a vagal response to lower your own heart rate? Valsalva is dangerous. You might pass out in these circumstances, but you are trying to get a vagal response. And this has been demonstrated. This is not, you know, woo. This is real. Um, in fact, there's entire uh, heart rate variability um, studies on this exact thing. And, and heart rate variability is a marker of how uh, de-stressed you are. And these, this is the breathing form. You know, everyone has their own internal rhythm of this. So for some people it would be four and a half seconds and six seconds or, you know, 3.5 and seven, you know, it's going to be different for everyone, but you're not going to know yours unless you actually work with a heart rate monitor. And, you know, it's actually a great practice. I recommend it. Um, but you know, you're not going to have this in the moment. So four and six will work nicely for you. And yes, what you're trying to do is vagal countering of that excess sympathetic surge. Fantastic. I got to start practicing that. With a heart rate monitor, that would be cool. It'd be cool to see. Yeah, if you have a polar or anything that you're tracking for fitness, then there's a bunch of like either free or incredibly cheap iPhone apps that will tell you your heart rate variability. And what you try to find is the inhalation exhalation match that gets you the greatest heart rate variability. And then once you have that number, you know that is yours forever. And if your number is like uh, five and a half second inhale and you know seven second exhale, then that's what you should be doing during the stress simulations. Excellent. Excellent. And the last one you went over, I think, is fantastic. The find your feet, literally grounding yourself. Because in those environments, you, you kind of feel like you're floating. Absolutely. You feel like you're you know, underwater or floating in the air or whatever variation of that. But just looking at and feeling your feet on the ground, what a very simple and powerful way to connect yourself back and literally ground yourself to the environment. Yep. That's from the meditative world. And it's, it's worthwhile to have body awareness uh, as a meditation. Uh, and it's, it's directly applicable to stress. Fantastic. All right, so uh, you ready to dive into sort of how I went through the crike? Yeah, and let's go your, through it, man. And, and let's preface with any successful crike is the right crike. So yes, if you yes. got an airway on that patient, then it was a huge win. Well, we uh, spoiler alert. Yes, he he we succeeded. I succeeded. I suppose the team uh, was able to pull through. But uh, we're walking through the steps of it. So as I mentioned, we placed an LMA. 
And we're lucky that, you know, through that very small aperture, we able to reox him, get him back up to a, a good number where I felt comfortable. I put in, you know, two cc's of my concoction I had created earlier into my target area after I did the laryngeal handshake. But that, uh, that neck was, was badly burned. There's, it was difficult to feel through this kind of leathery, edematous and tight uh, skin. But I was able to find the area I thought I was going to be going after. Uh, did my vertical incision, and there was very little blood, probably because of that full thickness burn that the patient had. Uh, the nurse actually used a yank hour suction for taking away that bit of blood, which I thought was kind of nice, but I, I didn't anticipate. Uh, probably not uh, vital, obviously, to the success of what this is really a blind procedure after you get through your first uh, incision. But I, I went through and did my horizontal stab. And in retrospect, I don't know if I went scalpel finger bougie. I think I went scalpel to bougie. But the bougie thread with, you know, tactile confirmation of the trachea, put a 6.0 tube over that. I'm, you know, pretty sure that I right may and send him because my adrenaline was, you know, through the roof at 11. Um, so we pulled it back, put on one of those sort of sticky uh, tube holder things that we often use and successfully cracked the individual. Um, so in recounting that, Scott, how'd I do? What kind of uh, tips you have? What would you keep? What would you change? in terms of that process. Yeah, well, I'm going to reiterate what I said at the beginning, which is if you get it successfully somewhere in the trachea, I don't even care how it gets there, then that is a win on a crike. So that everything else is just, you know, fine points here. You had prepped yes. the 11 blade in your uh, getting the room set up. Was that what you actually used? All right, and it'll work. Um, for most patients, if I have to get something prepped ahead of time. It's going to be a 10 blade. A 10 blade is going to give you a lot more options. It's going to make it a lot easier. And if you are going to use the technique you actually wound up using, which is not putting a finger through the cricothyroid membrane, mm. then the 10 blade is intrinsically dilating. Um, as opposed to mm. 11 blade, it's usually too thin and you might have to uh, push a little bit harder than you want. So if you have the time to figure out oh, let's get ready for a crike on this patient as opposed to, please hand me a scalpel, um, then a 10 is the nice one to prep. And especially on a patient with the SCAR, um, cutting through that stuff with a 10 blade is a little bit easier, but there's no nothing wrong with it. And the techniques I teach are blade agnostic. And your, um, does so, your stab uh, incision, the does the stab work just happily. as well with the 10? Um, now That's the nurse why I chose the 11, I suppose. Better, right? So, no, so actually it works better. So uh, when I teach... 11 blade or blade agnostic cricothyrotomy, uh, I require people to make this stab incision with the 11 blade, pull all the way towards them, flip the blade 180 degrees and push away. So you're cutting the full extent of the cricothyroid membrane, um, which is what allows you to get away with the smaller size of the 11 blade and allows you to remove the blade entirely off the field to stick your finger in there. If you want to use the technique, and it, it's an adequate technique of um, just stabbing and then placing a bougie next to it, it really benefits from a 10 blade when the 10 blade mm -hmm. size in and of itself is enough to make a big enough incision. And then mm -hmm. what you ideally do is rotate that 10 blade uh, 90 degrees so that the blade faces towards the patient's feet and then run the bougie alongside the flat portion of the blade rather than uh, along the blade itself. Now you probably did this intrinsically. Um, and even if you didn't, it would sure. still work, but it, it it's harder when you don't make that 90 degree turn. But I, I want to come back to the Yankauer. Now, this nurse was being helpful, and, uh, you know, you have to uh, applaud the uh, intent and the forethought. You know, this nurse said, oh, my God, there's going to be bleeding. Let me help out. And it's fine. Like, it's not going to do any harm as long as it's not getting in your way. But it does, 
again, put a cognitive barrier to what has to happen, which is it might click you into the mode of, wow, if she's suctioning and mm -hmm. now I have a big puddle of blood, let me let her suction again or him suction again to get that puddle of blood out before I start making my uh, plunge incision through the cricothyroid. And you want to get out of that mindset. You want to say, just as you did, this is a blind procedure. So I probably would say, you don't need to suction for me. Um, because I, I think it's just going to send me down the wrong mental path. It is a fully tactile procedure after the initial skin incision. So it doesn't matter to me um, if there is bleeding and whether I could see or not. And I won't even care about, even if it's spurting blood, and many times people think they hit the carotid. You didn't. You probably just hit a superficial nothing artery. Um, but they'll get really scared, and then they'll try to get hemostasis before they have the airway in. And first of all, putting the airway in tamponades everything down quite nicely. Um, so that in and of itself should, you know, take care of the bleeding. But even if it doesn't, they will not exsanguinate before they die of the lack of the ET tube. So the move is always, no matter how much the bleeding is, even if you did somehow hit a branch of the uh, anominate, and it really is a massive exsanguination, is to finish the crike. And then, no matter what you hit, it's amenable to direct pressure. So I don't want suction that's in there, and I feedback. don't and, want hemostasis. And until thinking about, yeah, you get a pumper, uh, that's going to add a little bit more of that stress inoculation and make you think that you need to, you, oh, God, I've done something wrong. I need to fix that, right? We see a problem. We try to fix it quickly. But recognizing that they're more rapidly going to die from their hypoxia uh, than they are from that, even if it's a, a, a decent pumper, uh, you can get that airway and then fix the bleed. Um, so, yeah, this case, for me, it was kind of a perfect exactly. storm of all of the things that you don't really want as a physician, right? Yeah, I was a young doctor. I was with a team that I wasn't very familiar with. I had two prior shifts, but many of the nurses were were different. The environment was unfamiliar. I was two years out from residency, and I hadn't practiced cricothyrotomy about that time, two, two and a half years. So some of those elements are controllable. Some of them, of course, are not. Scott, what would you recommend for the audience when it comes to these HALO, the high acuity, low opportunity procedures, and maintaining your yourself as an individual and your team in preparedness? Yeah, so let, well, let's use Crike as the example since it's so pertinent to what we've been discussing today. Um, this is the ultimate HALO procedure, right? Like you need to know how to do this, but you might do one in a career unless you're an idiot like me. Um, so you should train on this. Now, luckily for Crike, as in contradistinction to many procedures, um, test trainers are enough. And my buddy, Laura Duggan, she actually uh, took a, a, a common source model and made a 3D print um, schematic that you could take to any 3D print shop or if you have a printer at home or you have a buddy who has it, just print one up. And that model, that plastic model with some four by fours in a plastic bag, you find how to do this on MCRIT, is enough if you do this regularly to be absolutely ready for real life. I've had, I think at this stage, like 38 people email me after doing one of my courses where I just, I, they had no pigs, they had no human models, they just had this plastic test trainer, some 4x4s in plastic bags, and then they did their first crike and they were like, it was completely like the test trainer, it was absolutely fine, I had no problem uh, doing that translation. So this means you don't need to be in a sim lab, you don't need to have extensive equipment. What you do need to do is actually force yourself to practice this on a regular basis. My buddy Sarah Gray has on her calendar, I think it's every three months, practice crike and it's on her calendar so she does it she gets out the task trainer she steals some four by fours and plastic bags from a department and she just goes through 10 of these crikes which takes like less than 10 minutes and then she'll do it again uh it might even be more frequent i don't remember her exact duration uh of spacing between uh these practice sessions but the idea is 
you should do probably do this. Like if there's 12 procedures that are halo in your world, then put one a month on your calendar and just do them. Um, and it might be mental visualization. It might be, you don't have a test trainer for something like a, mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah. the Minnesota tube or Blakemore for mm -hmm. GI bleeds or something like that. Or maybe yeah. it just means you go in your shift 10 minutes early, open up the Blakemore. You don't ruin it. You don't get it on sterile, but you look at it and you say, okay, well, what additional equipment would I need? How would I sure. actually get this that makes done? Sense. To I like that you bring up the mental modeling because like you said, I mean, resuscitative hysterotomy, you know, you're not, you, you're not going to really be able to reproduce that in any meaningful way, probably. Um, but at least taking the uh, procedure out, dusting it off either physically or mentally uh, at regular interval. Uh, that's a great idea. How about, how about in terms of team? Do you, does uh, Sarah do this with her, her charge nurses or with other members of the team? Well, they're at, at their shop in Canada. Uh, that's my buddy, Chris Hicks, Andrew Pachosniak. Uh, all those folks are there. And they're simming up the wazoo, things like uh, nurse code leader for cardiac arrest, uh, management of trauma, uh, heavy traumas. Uh, so they're doing sim scenarios all the time. Now, if you're in a community shop uh, where you don't have that culture of, you know, giving free time for, you know, people to plan these sims and stuff, then you have to pare it down a little bit. But there's no reason that you can't, you know, once a month get everyone on board that we're just going to do an insight to sim for 10 minutes during a quiet time. And you just pick out a scenario um, that is uh, rare. Um, but yet you still want people trained to do. So like we have all of a sudden a patient roll in with uh, a massive exsanguination from trauma. Let's just run through it. You know, you don't even have to open up equipment. Let's just tabletop it. All right, well, I need massive transfusion. How do we get that done? All right, well, we, we forgot. Okay, let's let's review it during the debrief of the case, how our massive transfusion protocol actually works. And it might just be that there's only four units of blood in the entire hospital and uh, we use PCC. Okay, fine, let's, let's work that out. Um, where's the pelvic binder? I have no idea. Oh, that's right, we don't stock a pelvic binder. So we actually use sheets. Do people remember how to do a public binding with sheets? No, we don't. Okay, let's let's review that during the debrief and, and mark down that maybe we send out an educational piece on how to bind a pelvis with sheets. But that kind of stuff could be done with no money, very little time, and yet makes everyone really love the person who's orchestrating them. You know, like everyone loves it. It's just so much fun. Um, and it really affects your ability to be ready for these patients. I love that. I think that's a, a great idea in terms of team and, you know, working as a team and, and in our particular environment now with the turnover that we've seen in healthcare, a lot of us are working with nurses we're not familiar with, travel nurses, things like that. And if you can get that team on board, you're going to find all of these holes that you mentioned that really shouldn't be there, not knowing how we, you know, bind a pelvis, not ha knowing how we give blood to patients. Uh, and while it, it's ideal to have it at a time that's organized and scheduled, I'm finding myself on, you know, some of our overnights when it's not crazy, which is few and far between, but there's times once a month or so where we get the group together and just walk through mentally some of these cases. So in any capacity that you can do it, obviously it's going to be beneficial for the group. All right. So coming back to the case and sort of how the patient's doing, you know, he handles that quite well. We get him on the vent. We begin the fluid resuscitation, you know, using LR for the Parkland formula. He's incredibly badly burned. It's a large volume resuscitation. Uh, call the trauma center, uh, which who accepts him and we're sort of letting the dust settle. You know, uh, I take, come up to him and just notice that his chest is even his neck. When we did the procedure, I mentioned it was like leather. He has this leather type, uh, sensation to the chest. Now the idea about how is he going to do on this ventilator with that degree of burning certainly came to my mind. You know, 
unfortunately, a lot of the references out there about escarotomy talk about if it inhibits re- you know, adequate respiration or if there's respiratory compromise related to the circumferential burns. That's very vague. It's not very practical to me. So how do you know when a patient like this needs an escarotomy? And also, what's the timing for that? Yeah, so you're going to know because you're going to start getting pressure alarms on your vent if you're in a volume control mode, which is, I think, what most emergency department uh, physicians are going to be using is a volume control mode. Uh, you'll start getting peak pressure alarms, and that, that's going to tell you like you're not getting in those breaths because it, it can't exceed the pressure that chest wall is exerting. If you're on a pressure control mode, you start noticing your tidal volumes diminishing. That's really mm-hmm. the time for, I think, emergency medicine where they should be considering this. Um, and so the, the vent will keep alarming. You look up, it's pressure alarms. It's going to be the S-car at that point. And you look down at the chest at that point, and they're, they're just not expanding their chest wall. So, uh, you know, we might be doing it earlier in a burn ICU. Um, you know, we might just say, screw it. We know they're going to progress to this. But for an ED doc who probably doesn't want to do this if they don't have to, that's when is when you're not getting your full breaths in on the ventilator. Um, and, and that means they're not going to be able to be a safe transport or you know safe to wait around like this any longer. Okay, perfect. And I, what I recollect of the case in talking with our trauma surgeon, we asked specifically about this, and I think he set that number at 40. He was like, if he's starting an alarm or if he's getting to uh, peak pressure of 40, that's, that's not good. You know, That's looking like he's having restriction in terms of lung expansion. And that's when you would consider doing the procedure. Does that mirror? With yeah, that's a very fair imagine? number. It's, it's somewhere between 40 and 50. And it's not like you're not going to get this number. That's the thing. Um, because uh, your respiratory therapists are usually going to set it. And they usually set it somewhere between 40 and 50. So that, that's gonna, it's going to work out well for you regardless of where you're at. Is, um, you know, your peak pressure alarm generally gets set about 10 or 20 above your maximum plateau, which is 30. So they'll set it at 40 to 50. So when the alarm starts getting off, you know you have a problem. That's easy. Thing starts alarming. We know we got a problem. We got to start cutting. Okay. Well, fantastic. Luckily for the patient, that those alarms did not occur. Uh, there was a delay in transport. We actually had a hard time finding an ambulance ventilator. So we had a longer stay in our ER, but we continued the resuscitation. The dust settled. We were eventually allowed to high five one another and a uh, patient made it out of the apartment safely. So worked through a very challenging case for me. Um, I really, Scott, I appreciate you so much coming on talking through not only the mechanics of doing cricothyrotomy, but also that sort of stress mitigation in the moment. Uh, thanks so much for your insights and, and talking through this case that really was uh, kind of a practice-changing case for me. Oh, so great to catch up with you, man. Till next time. Everybody, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.